Colossians this morning. Uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1, uh, and we'll be reading verses uh, 9 uh, through 14. Colossians chapter 1. Listen then to the word of God. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance uh, and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered you, uh, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask this morning that you would uh, bless your word, uh, that as we share your word and, and preach it, Lord, that it would sow seeds into our hearts that the Holy Spirit would see uh, fit to use. Uh, meet each one of us where we are today, what uh, we come to, to church with in our hearts and, and uh, maybe struggles or cares, maybe joys. Uh, Lord, we just ask that your spirit would minister to each one of us. Uh, that it would be through your power, for your honor and glory, so that Jesus Christ is lifted up in all that we do. In your name we pray. Amen. When you get married, uh, I hope you would say that you know your spouse. Uh, Even if you've only been dating a little bit, you at least know them to some degree. In fact, uh, before I marry someone, uh, we usually do some premarital counseling to make sure that they don't have uh, that just that starry-eyed going gaga for their spouse and have ignored uh, everything else about them. So most of us, when we got married, we said to at least to some degree, and maybe we were a little bit naive, but we at least said, I'm in love. I, I know who they are. And then I'm sure as many of you can identify, as the marriage gets going and things happen, uh, maybe it's that time that you have that first fight. Maybe it's that time where you you make up after that first fight and it's a real joy and everything seems fresh again. It's like new life. Maybe it's when you you have uh, kids. or Maybe it's when the, the kids start driving and it adds stress to the marriage or when the kids leave the house. There are various phases along your life in your marriage, and you hopefully grow in knowing your spouse. And many of us, I'm sure, who have been married uh, for for longer periods of time, and many of you obviously longer uh, than my wife and I, you, you look and you say, boy, now I really know them. And maybe you, some of you say, I wish I knew what I was getting into when I when I got married. But there is this growth in your marriage, this growth in, in knowing uh, the person. So that when we start out, we just, oh yeah, I, I know them, I'm in love, this is great. And then we get going and it's like, but yeah, now I know them. And there's just a, a depth to the relationship. There's, there's a, a freshness, hopefully, to that. 
Sometimes there's a, 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 a deeper stability to it because you know how your spouse is, is going to respond and you know their character and what they're, they're like. You know, the same is, is true with our Christian life. Uh, when we become saved, we can say, I know God now. I have put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and I see these things that I did not see, that I am a sinner that I need a Savior, that God is good, that God is merciful, that I can trust Him. And then life gets going. And we have to often put that Christian faith into action, into practice. And we all have known people that have struggled. Perhaps we know people that have fallen away. But more often than not, what happens as the Spirit works in us, we come to these places in life where we say, now I know God. I knew Him when I got saved. But I have trusted Him through this hardship. I have seen Him work. I have seen Him come through. I have have found Him to be reliable. For myself, I have have had experiences where you know these things to be true about God because I, I grew up in the church and I heard all of the Bible stories and I saw all the great heroes of the faith and then something happens to me in my life and I can say, yeah, God really is like that. I really do know Him. God wants us to grow in our spiritual life. God wants us to grow in our knowledge of Him. I mentioned Job in my prayer earlier. Job, at the end of the book of Job, after all that he had been through, and he has this encounter with God where God asks him, basically, Job, if you're so smart, explain to me how I did this, 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 this. And Job realizes he has no answer and that God's wisdom is infinite. And Job says, I heard of you, but now I've seen you. I think Job is sort of saying like what we're saying. Job knew God. But now he knows God. He's seen it in a, in a deeper way in his life. God wants us to grow in knowing him. And because God wants us to grow in knowing him, we need to pray for spiritual growth in our church. Uh, there's always at least one typo in the bulletin. And the main point this week is the typo in the bulletin. I'm going to start giving out prizes to people that can, can identify the title. You guys have been so gracious. I always find these typos and no one has pointed them out yet. I'm, I'm so grateful. Uh, my wife reminds me, though, there are typos sometimes. So she, she knows me. Uh, but pray for spiritual growth in, in our church because God wants us to grow in knowing him. We're not to stagnate in our Christian life. And in, and in some ways... Uh, The Christian life is like rollerblading uphill. You know what happens when you stop rollerblading uphill? You roll back down the hill. God wants us to be growing in our Christian life. And oftentimes when we we stop, when we let it take a back seat, we often take steps backwards in our intimacy with the Lord Jesus. So, what can we pray for in the life of the church? This sermon is sort of like last week's in the sense that we're giving you things to pray for again, but we're also identifying some of the key things that that the Bible marks out as what does spiritual growth look like. So first this morning, pray that we might grow in knowing God so that we might walk in His ways. We want to know God more 
so that we can walk in his ways. And it should go without saying, I think, that that when the Bible talks about knowing God, it's not just talking about knowing about God. It's not content for us to get all of this head knowledge in our minds and and fill it up and become this, this nerdy brainiac when it comes to the things of God and not actually be able to live them out and walk in obedience. So we are to grow in knowing God so that we might walk in his ways. So Paul prays, that believers might be filled with a knowledge of God's will and spiritual understanding. These are things that, that we need to ask God to do in our midst, to grow us, to give us this knowledge. It does not happen naturally. For Colossians 1 verse 9, look at it with me if you will. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Notice that Paul has a regular, habitual prayer for the church. And you'll remember we mentioned from last week that Paul had never met the church at Colossae face to face. This is not one of the churches that he personally planted, and yet... Since the time that he heard, they were part of his regular prayer life. Now, when he says we have not stopped praying, I I don't think that it means he he prayed 24 hours a day, uh, 60 uh, minutes an hour uh, and so forth. That would be physically uh, impossible. But it speaks to the ongoing nature of Paul's prayer life. I don't know if Paul kept a list. But in some sort of pattern, the church of Colossae was always coming up. He was always praying for them. They were always a burden on his heart that these people might be knitted together in love. The very things that we want to see happen in our midst. And so he asks that you might be filled with a knowledge of his will, of of God's will. And so often when when we talk about the will of God, we think, God's personal will for our life. We think, well, I want to know, does God want me to take this job or does God want me to move here? Uh, What should I do in this decision that I have to make? And that that is an aspect of knowing the will of God. But but in Scripture and what Paul's talking about here, it focuses on on two aspects of the will of God. One, God's eternal will purposes. God's plan that comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It was the will of God that Jesus Christ would come, die on the cross, rise again, ascend into heaven, be our high priest in heaven. And and you think about all the things revealed in Scripture to us that God has done in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I want you to understand this to understand the grace of God, to understand how He operated, to see His will more and more, deeper and deeper in your life. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, God predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And God wants you to understand that will even more. This is the, that, that God has done these things. Uh, Ephesians 1, 8 and 9, that he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ. Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation is, is a coming to understand the will and purpose of God in Jesus Christ. 
And so growing in your salvation is understanding more and more about what Jesus has done and as fulfilling the will of God. The second aspect of the will of God that Paul uses elsewhere in Scripture is talking about the moral will of God. Basically, the things that God wants us to do or not do. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, Paul says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's a, a moral will. Don't do this. Don't live this way. In 1 fir- in Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 18, God's will is that we would give thanks. Uh, that's not the eternal purposes of God, the, the foreordained plan. That's the practical, God wants you to live this way in your life. And so Paul wants us to understand, if you will, the big picture, the will of God, but also the will in terms of how we should live day to day, walking in a manner worthy. That's going to take spiritual wisdom, spiritual insight, where we see the commands of Scripture and we know through the Holy Spirit in us how we're to obey in whatever situation uh, we find ourselves in. As the Christian life gets going, we can face some really tough decisions, really tough times where we struggle. How do I apply this passage or this aspect of the Word of God to my life? Sometimes it's even like I know the command, but I'm having a struggle seeing how I can be faithful to it in my particular situation. And so we pray for spiritual growth. We should pray for ourselves and for others for wisdom for insight, so that it might be a natural connection where we see the will of God. Do this. Be thankful. Don't do this. Uh, Flee from those desires and temptations. And we say, and this is how I can do this through the power of God in my life. Paul wants believers to walk then in a manner worthy of God, or worthy of the Lord. So look at verse 10. The whole purpose of, of being filled with this knowledge is not to have just puffed up heads, but so as the the reason, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing uh, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The more I come to know Jesus and God's plan, His will, this mystery revealed, the more I am motivated. It is like, fuel in a, in a jet engine that I am fired up to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and live pleasing to Him. When I understand that in my salvation God's grace has done it all, it gives me the energy, the power, the, the fuel to walk in a, in a manner worthy of Him. That He has done all of these things. Let me just give you two things concerning your spiritual life. There are two, I think, areas that we need to work at and grow in. And, and, and sometimes what I find in the Christian life is, is this good works and this knowing in God. Sometimes there are people that are really good on one side of it, and they're not so good on the other. And it's, it's, it's both. It's like your right and your left hand. Uh, in the Bible, behavior is never separated from right belief. Behavior is never separated from right belief. So you cannot say, uh, according to the Bible's picture of the Christian life, just give me things to do 
don't fill my head with all that knowledge of God and knowing God stuff. I just want to be practical. I just want the good works, the love. That's the easy stuff. Uh, sometimes people uh, get this idea that all we need is deeds. Uh, the, the saying goes, deeds, not creeds. That, that all Christians would somehow just get along if we all just focused on loving one another and we didn't have any kind of doctrinal statements among us. Uh, well, that doesn't work because people fight over how to love one another, believe it or not. Should we start a homeless shelter or should we start a food kitchen? Uh, and people will argue uh, over just about anything. Scripture doesn't have a category of a believer who is growing in love and good works, but not growing in knowing God. The Lord wants us to love Him and love Him with our minds. And knowing God, knowing the mysteries of His will will mean understanding and growing in His Word. The Bible, however, also uh, does not divorce behavior from knowing things. So the Bible never wants us to sit in some sort of uh, academic ivory tower saying, I know God, I'm studying, I'm pastor, I'm going to learn Greek and Hebrew and systematic theology and church history and all these things, and I will be a strong Christian and I will let other Christians go out and love. That's their gift. You cannot say, I know God and I'm growing in my knowledge of God if you're not walking in a manner worthy of Him which means bearing fruit in love uh, and good deeds. Uh, My college professor, pastoral studies professor, had a really good analogy for this. Uh, And it's the analogy of a pond. And and if you have a pond and you have water coming in, that would be uh, the growing in your knowing God, feeding yourself, the Word of God. If, If you have water coming in, You also need water going out. That would be loving others, serving others, uh, engaging people with with our good works. And and think about a pond. If you have water coming in, uh, but no water going out, what happens? Have you ever been around those smelly ponds where, where the water stagnates and, and, and the, you know, there's just all this green stuff all over it. That's what happens when it fills with water, but none is moving out. Of course, obviously, if you have none coming in and and you have all this water going out, the pond just drains. It becomes dry. It becomes just soppy mud at the bottom, and it's not a healthy uh, ecosystem. And so it is uh, with the Christian life. We need water uh, coming in, knowing God, really knowing Him, not just knowing about Him. But we need to be bearing fruit in in good works. And and my uh, experience... I think typically Christians kind of tilt to one or the other. Some people are really good at just serving, and they just have this heart. But the the growing and knowing God, reading their Bible, they really struggle with that. Other people uh, could spend hours reading the Word of God, but they struggle with with getting involved and, and using their spiritual gifts. And God wants us to have both. We should pray to that end in our church that we might know God more, That God might be stretching us in in loving others and being obedient. Second this morning, pray that we might be strengthened by God's power for patience and endurance. Spiritual growth comes from God's power working in us. 
The whole reason we need to to dedicate these things to prayer is because it has to be God working in us. Do you really believe that? that? That you and I cannot in ourselves cultivate spiritual growth. It's a product of the Holy Spirit. It's a product of His stirring up our hearts. And so all we need to do is ask the Lord to be at work, to strengthen us. Verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Uh, A slightly better translation of this is is to see it not as a new sentence, uh, May you be strengthened, but being strengthened, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, having been strengthened by God's power. So how do we come to this walking in the Lord? God is pouring his power into us, strengthening us. It has always been of great comfort and amazement to me to remember that the same power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, the same power that that God exercised when the Father says to the Son, come up into heaven and sit at my right hand, is the very same power that God wants to work in your spiritual life. Think about that for a minute. God raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, Comes to mind in the movie Aladdin, the cartoon movie, uh, when the genie comes out of the bottle. Great cosmic power, he says. And then he goes, itty bitty living space because of that genie lamp. God's power far exceeds that of some cartoon. But God wants his power at work in you. And Paul says this, praying again in Ephesians, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called and what are the riches of the inglorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Paul prays, and we should pray, and we should desire to know the immeasurable power of God for us, in us, as we believe, those who are believing. And he says that's the same thing, the same quality of power that God worked when he raised Jesus from the dead. I hope this morning that that would encourage you. I hope that that would encourage you that that prayers are effective. And praying is effective not because of the power of you and I to offer these prayers. But praying is effective because the power of God is what we're asking to do the work. Praying is effective because of the one to whom we pray. Maybe you have a specific thing in your life you're praying for. Maybe some spiritual growth. Maybe some sort of victory over sin. Maybe a situation that you're enduring through. Something that you want to throw in the towel. Maybe a physical hardship. 
Maybe a hardship at your job, a, a personality conflict, somebody you're just bashing heads with and you, you grit your teeth and you say, I'm a Christian so I can't lash out and punch this person and, and lose my cool with him. And you're wondering how you're going to go to work on Monday and resist and endure and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. God wants His power to be at work in you. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says that as a good father will give good gifts to his children, so our loving Father will not fail to give the Holy Spirit to us when we ask for Him. If you go to your mom or dad, or if one of my kids comes to me, and they ask me for some food, and Jesus uses this analogy, I'm not going to give them a snake. I'm not going to give them a scorpion. I'm not going to smack their hand when they have a need and say, get away from me, I can't be bothered. So it is with God when we pray for His power to be at work. And He wants to build endurance in you. Patience with joy. Look at the end of verse 11. So that we might be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for... So what's the purpose of having the power of God in us? For all endurance and patience with joy. So often the Christian life is not God removing a trial from us, but God strengthening us up under it. There is no greater example of this than Psalm 23. You know the psalm well, I'm sure, where David prays, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is endurance. This is patience. How many of us in that situation would rather God walk us around the valley of the shadow of death, right? Take this away from me. I don't want to go through this. Make it easy. I, want, I, want, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to face this. I don't want to face the anguish and the pain and the tears. And what does David say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David was given endurance and patience. You know, when you exercise, it builds muscle. When God walks us through the trial and gives us what we need for that daily moment, it builds our confidence in Him. It builds us in knowing Him. How can I pray for someone going through a trial? First, you can pray that the trial is removed. Even though many times God wants to walk us through it so that we'd learn more, it is still right to pray that the trial would be removed. Jesus himself in the garden prayed this, even though he knew it was the ultimate will of God that he would go to the cross. God, Jesus, knew the will of God, and yet he poured out his heart and and said, in effect, uh, I don't want to suffer. I don't want the, the pain, and yet I want to obey you, Father. So on the one hand, he wanted to suffer and die for us. On the other hand, uh, Jesus didn't relish the coming pain. He didn't, oh, goody, I'm going to get beat to a pulp. It's okay to pray that a trial be removed. 
But do not see it as a failure of your prayers or a failure of God when God doesn't remove the trial. Second, pray and ask that that God would use the trial to help us or the believer you're praying for to help him know God more. To understand the ways of God. To find Him trustworthy. To find Him to be that refreshment that the believer, the child of God, needs in that very moment. Pray then, too, that the child of God will endure. Jesus warns us in the parable of the sower about the seed going out and some of it falls on the rocky ground and He says that they believe, but then when the trials of life come, It chokes out that seed that was planted. Those sprouts that started to grow where the person looked like they were trusting in the Lord. The trial comes and it wipes it away and shows they weren't a believer. We need to pray for the believer going through trials that that would not happen to them. That their faith would be polished and shine and show itself to be genuine. That God would work, even as we sang, that that God does not abandon His own. And that this Christian would endure. That is how spiritual growth happens. And let me just say, you know, as a word of encouragement to us as a church, you know, if you think about the last two or three years of a church, the church here, There have been some struggles. There have been some hardships. But you guys as as believers, and, and before I came, you endured. God worked through those trials so that that now many of you have stepped up in ways you, you wouldn't have imagined or wouldn't have dreamed. That God has has sharpened your faith and trust in Him. That you hopefully see more of His plan and purpose. Not that we understand all of why God allowed this to happen or what He did. But He showed Himself through those times to be faithful. And He has brought you through that. And He has brought you here today. And He has built you up in the faith by giving you encouragement, endurance, and allowing you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Hopefully you can say now in a way that you couldn't say five years ago or ten years ago, I know the Lord. I have seen Him be faithful to His people. I know the goodness of God and the love that He has for the church. The whole point of Paul praying these things in Colossians, his whole burden for the church at Colossae, we read it last week in Colossians 2.2, he says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit up in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of mystery which is in Christ. I hope that you feel today that we have been knit together in love. And that God is knitting us together in love. And all of these things that He brought us to has has built us in together so that we are even more assured about what Jesus Christ has done for us. Then finally this morning, pray that we might give thanks for what God has done in our salvation. You see, the more I understand the grace of God, the more we are growing in the knowledge of God, the more we become 
people of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should be the number one attribute, uh, aside from love, of course, but thanksgiving should be this thing that, that bubbles over, that, that, that there's almost this circular relationship, that when I come to know God, I become more thankful. Because I say, wow, I see what God has done. And as I'm saying, wow, I see what God has done. He's amazing. And I'm praising Him. And I'm saying, this is great. And I say, thank you. We actually, I think, in in return, come to know God more. Because we, in our thankfulness, are saying things about God and about how wonderful He is. And we are meditating on these things. And and the truth just begins to, to saturate into our hearts. And we become like a sponge soaking these things up. Thanksgiving leads us to knowing God more, I think. And knowing God more, Paul is very clear leads to greater thanksgiving. Look at verse 12. Give thanks because God has qualified us. Give thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. God is the one who has fit us to be a part of His kingdom. He has made us and shaped us and worked in us so that we can enter into His kingdom being qualified, not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done. The Bible says that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. So if I am going to dwell in the kingdom of light, me, the sinner who has darkness in Him, God has to fit me. God has to shape me. God has to make me sufficient and qualified to actually receive that inheritance. God the Father takes me from the kingdom of evil, from my sin and darkness, and He transfers me into the kingdom of light. The Father moves us from one kingdom to another. Look at verse 13. For He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom of His Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I almost debated doing just one sermon on these wonderful verses. God has transferred you. He has moved you from being under the kingdom of the evil one, where Satan is called the God of this age, where Ephesians chapter 2 describes us in our sin as being people who are following the course of the world, following the prince of power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That spirit was at work in us And we were under the slavery to our sin inside the domain of darkness that God has allowed Satan in his rebellion to try to establish a rival kingdom. And in our sin and in our rebellion against God before we are saved, our loyalty, our allegiance is to that kingdom that is trying to rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ and against God the Father. And when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, He is a redemption for us. The imagery of redemption is the the picture of the slave market. 
where someone has to be bought to be set free. To be set free from the slavery to our sin, Jesus Christ had to pay that penalty with His blood so that we might be bought and receive the forgiveness of sins. Amen? Jesus Christ, the Son, and we'll talk about Him next week, but it is in Him whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But look at what God does in verse 13. He delivers us. He rescues us. He is the great liberator, setting us free based on what Jesus Christ has done. He delivers us from that domain of darkness and He transfers us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He sets us free and He puts us under a new authority. So sin is no longer our master. The devil might bring temptations over us or to us, but he cannot defeat us or rule over us. His hand is always restrained by the mighty power of God so that even now, even more as a believer, we are like Job where Job, the devil, was told, you cannot take his life. Satan's hand is restrained so that he can never capture us back into his kingdom. He can never take our spiritual life away. When you are saved, you confess your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. You profess, you you make a, a public statement, a declaration that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised Him from the dead. And in that, there is a transfer where you come under a new rulership. At the moment of salvation, you moved from one kingdom to another. And I'm just going to be blunt here with some of the things that were said uh, in the past, some of the, the, the incorrect understandings of salvation. This is why, this idea of this kingdom transfer is why we should avoid the language of making Christ Lord of my life. Making Christ my Lord is not a later step of discipleship. There is always, don't misunderstand me, there is always a growth in my salvation. There is always a sense where I'm growing and I am learning to obey Him more and learning to walk in a manner worthy of my Lord. And part of that does mean just acknowledging things that sometimes in my sin I ignore. But the moment you are saved, Christ is your Lord. You make it as your profession of faith that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And God in doing this transfers you. You have Jesus as your Lord. He is over you. Think about this for a second. If you were at a job and you get transferred from one department to another, so you have this old boss, and maybe you don't like him, and, and he's horrible, and, and, and someone transfers you to another department, and you're in this new department. Do you, do you go to your new boss and say, well, you know, it's going to take a while, but eventually I'll make you my boss. Eventually I'll start listening to you. 
It, it'll be a process. No, you have been moved from one department to the other. This new guy is your boss. And what happens in the corporate world if you say, well, you know, I'm, not, I'm not sure I like this guy as my boss. I'm not sure I want to do everything he says. You, know, whoosh, you get the axe, right? Uh, you're, you're out on the street. Now, God doesn't do that to us. But the point is, you're already under an authority. Think of it like, like getting a citizenship in a new country. If you give up your citizen in the country you came from and you come to America and you get a new citizenship, do you get to look through the Constitution? And I like this one. Oh, not so sure about this First Amendment. I like the Second Amendment, though. Oh, this third and, and fifth. We'll, we'll see about that one. Maybe I'll come around to it. Give me time to decide which laws I want to obey. Give me time. You know, I'm, I'm not so sure about that President Obama guy. Maybe in a little while I'll make him my president. It doesn't work that way. When you become a citizen of the country, all of those rights and privileges come upon you, but also all of the responsibilities. Now, hear me very clearly. I understand and I sympathize with people that want to say, yes, but the Christian life is an ongoing struggle of growth. And the moment you get saved, you don't have it all figured out all at once. I agree with that completely. God works in us and we grow so far in our holiness. But from the moment you are saved, you are in a new kingdom. And you have a responsibility to live under the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made you a member of His body. You are now a child of the King. It's not up to you to say, well, you know, am I going to decide that He's my Lord at some point or not? I don't know, but I'm okay. I'm saved. God made Him your Lord in a special way when He took you out of that kingdom where you were dead in your sins and He transferred you into a kingdom with a loving, caring, most gentle and compassionate shepherd who is the most tender person when we struggle with our sins, who is the most compassionate Savior when we slip and fall. But He is the most gracious and reigning Lord. The whole purpose of the will of God is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He rose again from the dead. And then as Kirsten read in Psalm 110, God the Father said to His Son, Sit at My right hand. Rule over all things until I take every one of your enemies and crush them under your feet. And in the grace of God, in the plan of God, in the wonderful will of God, in the time while He is doing that, God the Father also takes people out of that darkness who should be crushed by the King and He transfers them under the gentle hand of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual growth is a process of knowing that more. Spiritual growth is a process of recognizing that more and more and applying that to our lives. But the reality is that God did those things 
when we first became saved. Let me ask you this. Does this cultivate in you a greater sense of thanksgiving? God has transferred you from your rebellion against Him into the kingdom of His Son. Do you have a hunger to know this more? To, to when you read Scripture, look at what God has done. Look at even how the Old Testament and the New Testament are part of one unified plan in the will of God that He has done all of these things for the benefit of His people and for the glory of His name. My prayer for you here today is that each one of us would grow spiritually. That you would know God more. Maybe you need more joy in your life. Maybe you need more thanksgiving in your growth. Maybe, maybe you see this morning that your particular weakness is loving others or, or showing love and good deeds. Maybe some of us need to know God more. That we're just very unfamiliar with the Scriptures. We're very unfamiliar with the character of this wonderful God. Let me assure you of this. God is wonderful. He is amazing. That God the Father would send His one and only Son to be the redemption of our sins so that He might forgive us of our sins. And not only does He forgive you, He makes you fit for an inheritance. You get to go to heaven when you die. And as if that was not enough, you are an heir of all the good things that Jesus won. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would just speak to us through your word. Give us a joy. Give us a thanksgiving in our hearts. Lord, We need to draw closer to You and we need this spiritual growth to be at work in us. I pray that as we we think about the people who are gathered here in the room, that we would be committed to praying for one another. Praying for one another's spiritual growth. Each one of us, Lord, myself included, we all have areas where You want us to grow. Lord, I pray that You would feed us and nourish us through Your Word. That as we gather, we would feel a sense of fullness as we are fed through the power of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God. But I pray that we would also go out from here and show love and, and good deeds. That, that this, this fullness that we feel from You would, would bubble over into how we display ourselves and care for others and try to help other people out. Lord, I pray that, that this would be contagious in our midst. That You would draw people to You And draw people into this church for the sake of your name, for your honor and glory. We pray these things. Amen.